Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 and 23, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay on Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. We're going to continue our look at what is normally referred to as the intertestamental period. This is the 400 plus year period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. R.D., how about giving us a brief reminder about why you thought it was important for us to do a series that focuses on a time period in history when books of the Bible weren't being produced? Well, greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. As we mentioned last time, it's impossible to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament without knowing something about the period that elapsed in between them. A lot of people may not realize that there was a period of about 450 years that separated the writing of the last books of the Old Testament and the preparation of the first books of the New Testament. Because our Bibles are complete today, you can turn one page and you go from Malachi to Matthew. Well, a lot of people don't realize that turning that page spans a gap of over 400 years and perhaps even over 450 years. So if we don't know what happened during that gap, our understanding of much of the Gospels and our understanding of other parts of the New Testament is going to be incomplete. So we've named this particular series Perfectly Quiet the intertestamental period. That period was quiet in the sense that during that period, God gave no new special revelations to a prophet or a messenger. But as we will see as this series progresses, that period was also perfect in its duration and perfect in how God was preparing the world for the arrival of Jesus. Thank you. So, what you're saying is that because there was a gap of 400 to 450 years or so between Malachi and Matthew, conditions in and around Israel had changed quite a bit. And if we don't understand how they changed, it's a lot harder to make sense of some or most of what's going on in the New Testament. And it's especially hard to understand the Gospels, which of course are the books of the Bible that focus on Jesus' earthly life. For instance, when Malachi was written, the Jews were back living in their homeland after the period of the Babylonian captivity. 
but Israel wasn't independent. It was a vassal state of the Persian Empire at that point in history. It was ruled by the Persians. When the New Testament opens, the Jews still lived in their homeland, and they still weren't a truly independent nation. But now, rather than being part of the Persian Empire, they were part of the Roman Empire. Yes, and that change in empires brought important changes throughout the region of the world that is addressed by the Bible texts, which is chiefly the Middle East, parts of northeastern Africa, and the southern and eastern parts of Europe. So one of the subjects that we're going to tackle during this series is how did the world around Israel also change during the intertestamental period? Okay, that sounds reasonable. What other subjects will we be addressing? Well, of course, we want to talk about not only those changes that were taking place outside Israel, but also how those changes affected the Jews themselves. After all, God had promised that His Anointed One, because that's what the word Messiah means, would come to the world through and from the Jewish people. So it would be unwise, if not impossible, to try to separate what was happening within the Jewish nation from what was happening to the cultures and government surrounding it. Also, we want to spend some time during this series discussing the prophecies that were fulfilled during this intertestamental period. Hmm. So, one of the subjects we need to cover is that even though prophecies weren't being recorded at this time, prophecies were still being fulfilled. That does sound like a subject worth a bit of attention. So, where do you want to start? With a quote. Who are we quoting? I want to read a quote that comes from the study notes on the intertestamental period from the New Geneva Study Bible, because I think that this particular quote gives us a great summary of the situation that was facing the Jews at the start of that period. All right, let's get to it. You're quoting now from the New Geneva Study Bible. Right. Quote, As the history of the Old Testament drew to a close, the Hebrew community was chastened, divided, and expectant. Now, in order to understand the events of the intertestamental period and how those events pertain to the history of redemption, we need to understand how those adjectives, chastened, divided, and expectant, applied to the Hebrew community. Okay, why was the Hebrew community chastened at the start of the intertestamental period? Well, as we've mentioned a couple of times, The Jews had been allowed to return to Palestine after the end of what's often called the Babylonian captivity. Right. The Babylonians had conquered the Jews around 598 B.C., and the Babylonians began deporting Jews from Palestine to Babylon and the surrounding region. But it wasn't a single deportation. At first, they deported the wealthy and professional class. Later, after an unsuccessful attempt at resistance, The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and deported all but the very poorest people around 586 B.C. Yes, but the Babylonians were in turn conquered by the Persians. And as we heard in our opening scripture, the Persian king Cyrus is the one who gave the Jews permission to return to their homeland around 536 B.C. Well, one of the changes we notice in the books of the Bible that were written after the Babylonian captivity, as opposed to those that were written before, there is no mention of the problem of idolatry whatsoever. Now, there's mention of lots of other problems, such as marriages between Jewish men and women from pagan nations, about the Jews not tithing faithfully, 
about the Jews not being diligent in rebuilding the temple. But while there's a lot of criticism for other things, there's no rebuke in the post-captivity books of idolatry. So, the Jews were chastened in that they realized God had permitted them to be conquered and go into captivity because the pre-captivity nation had been plagued by persistent idolatry. The Jews could be certain of this because of warnings God had given them repeatedly. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses warns the Hebrews who were about to enter the promised land they would be cursed if they don't obey God's commandments. Of course, the first of the Ten Commandments was, You shall have no other gods before me. One of the curses Moses warned the Israelites about was in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 25, where it warns, quote, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies, unquote. Another was Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 36, where he warned, quote, The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. There, you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, unquote. Yes. As we've mentioned, the pre-captivity Israelites had been plagued by idolatry. The chastened, post-captivity Israelites were not. And that remained true. Even Jesus didn't condemn the Jews of his time for being idolaters. He criticized them for having weak faith. He criticized them for not believing his message or his works. He criticized them for their lack of genuine devotion to God and for revering their traditions more than revering Scripture. Jesus criticized the Jews of his generation for hypocrisy and a lot of other things, but Jesus did not have to criticize the Jews of his time for worshiping the gods of the nations that surrounded them. Now, I'm not saying that idolatry had disappeared entirely from Israel. I'm only observing that it was no longer the dominant, besetting sin that it had been before the captivity. In what way was the Hebrew community divided then? If they had given up idolatry, it sounds like they were unified around the God to be worshipped. And for the most part, they were unified around the God they worshipped. But their worship of God was often insincere, shallow, or even self-centered. Well, one of the primary ways that the Jews were divided was geographically. Now, remember at the time that Cyrus issued the decree allowing the Jews to return to Palestine, they had been in and around Babylon for decades. Some of the families who were in or around Babylon had been there for over 50 years. And so those Jews had made new lives in Babylon. Many had obtained high or important positions in government. If you'll remember from the book of Esther, Esther's uncle Mordecai was likely a fairly important Persian official. He lived in the citadel, which is the central hub of the Persian capital city. Nehemiah, we all know about the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the Persian king before he returned to Jerusalem to supervise the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. You know, some of the Jews had built businesses, and they were enjoying comfortable lives in their new home. Some of the Jews had moved away from Babylon and resettled in other areas. In particular, Egypt had a very large and prosperous Jewish population. So, when the opportunity under Cyrus came to return to Palestine, some Jews took advantage of it, but others didn't. Right. Largely, the priestly and religious class formed the nucleus of those who returned. Ezra, chapter 2, records that just a little over 40,000 Jews returned home. So while this was a faithful remnant, it was just a remnant. 
The scattering of the Jewish population is often referred to as the diaspora. Well, was this scattering relevant to the overall history of salvation? After all, we know that the Jews who did go back to Palestine from Babylon preserved their nation, language, religion, and culture for the next 450 years. Well, the scattering was actually very relevant to the history of salvation. I can give you a couple of very clear examples of how. Sounds intriguing. It is, but it's intriguing primarily because it is just another illustration of how God always ensures that His plans come to fruition, regardless of whether men always understand that they are furthering His plans. For instance, I mentioned that the Jews had built a thriving community in Egypt. Part of this community was in Alexandria, Egypt, a portion of which has since disappeared beneath the waves of the Mediterranean. Now, one of the ultimate effects of the dispersion was the production of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Many scholars believe that this translation began when the Egyptian pharaoh of the time, Philadelphus, wanted to include a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures in that world-famous Library of Alexandria. Now, whether Philadelphus commissioned the translation or not, We do know that in the 2nd century B.C., Greek translations of the Old Testament were circulating widely in and around Alexandria. Well, this ultimately led to them circulating throughout the broader Greek and ultimately Roman worlds. So, this wide distribution of the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament would not have occurred if the Jews had not already been widely scattered or dispersed. That's an interesting point. And ultimately, these widely dispersed Jewish communities with their copies of the Greek translation became the places where the gospel initially spread. In Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, the Bible says, quote, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Paul's ministry was mostly outside Palestine, in Asia, Greece, and ultimately Rome. Paul's standard pattern was to go to the Jewish community first, the synagogue. The synagogues wouldn't have been there if the Jews had not been widely dispersed after the Babylonian captivity. Right. There were Jewish communities scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and Paul would typically visit these communities first, and if his message wasn't received favorably in the Jewish community, then he would move on to the Gentiles. But the Jewish communities, again, these scattered Jewish communities that had arisen, they were very important starting points for the proclamation of the gospel. So the dispersion of the Jews was just another way that God used to carry forward his plan to bring the gospel to the entire world. But the dispersion was also evidence of the truth of God's word. You're thinking of passages such as 2 Chronicles 7, verses 19 and 20, where God said to Solomon, But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you, and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, unquote. So it's fair to say that the Jewish dispersion not only helped fulfill God's plan of redemption, it also was evidence of the truth found in Scripture. Yes, 
The chastisement of God's people through the Babylonian captivity, the subsequent return of a faithful remnant to Palestine and Jerusalem, and the dispersion were all evidence of the accuracy of God's word. And the Jews themselves recognized this. For instance, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, Daniel writes, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes' reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So, Daniel had obviously studied the Jewish scriptures that existed at that point. Well, those scriptures, as do ours, included the book of Jeremiah. And because Daniel believed in the truth of the scriptures that he possessed, late in the Babylonian captivity, he began looking for the Jews to be delivered, which of course they ultimately were. So the reason the Jews could be expectant at the start of the intertestamental period was because they had had some graphic demonstrations of the accuracy of their scriptures. Exactly. Now, the exact quote that Daniel was thinking about came from Jeremiah 25.11. But just to point out the precision of Jeremiah's prophecies, why don't you go ahead and read from an expanded section from Jeremiah 25. Let's do some extracts from verses 7 through 14. This is from the New Living Translation. Quote, but you would not listen to me, unquote, says the Lord. You made me furious by worshiping idols you made with your own hands, bringing on yourselves all the disasters you now suffer. And now the Lord of heaven's armies says, Because you have not listened to me, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whom I have appointed as my deputy. I will bring them all against this land and its people and against the surrounding nations. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then, after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord. I will make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. Many nations and great kings will enslave the Babylonians just as they enslaved my people." Unquote. And the Jews who were entering the intertestamental period had seen that Jeremiah's prophecy and many others had unfolded exactly as they had been foretold. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Judah. About 70 years after the first deportation under Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. Cyrus decreed that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple exactly as Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 44:28. So the Jews at the start of the intertestamental period could rightfully be expectant that other prophecies in their scriptures that were at the time unfulfilled would in due time be fulfilled. The Jews had seen plenty of prophecies fulfilled either during their lifetimes or in the lifetimes of their parents or grandparents. We can tend to forget that other generations long before ours have looked at the Bible, the scriptures, for hope. Even though the Jews of Malachi's day did not possess all of the scriptures that we do, they could place confidence in the ones they did possess. They could also have a sense of expectancy that the unfulfilled prophecies would be fulfilled such as the prophecies that pertain to the coming of the Messiah. We know now that the prophecies about the coming Messiah would have been fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So, we have a larger body of fulfilled prophecy than the intertestamental Jews did, 
But they had an abundant body of fulfilled prophecy. This gave them a reason for hopeful expectancy about their future. Yes, and as we are going to cover as we continue this study of the intertestamental period, additional prophecies contained in the scriptures would come true as the intertestamental period unfolded. Now, new books of the Bible weren't being added during the intertestamental period, but that does not mean that prophecies weren't going to be fulfilled. Prophecies were going to be fulfilled, and the precision of those prophecies and the nature of the fulfillment should be astounding and encouraging to anyone who takes the time to examine them. The prophetic fulfillment that would occur during and after the intertestamental period should definitely be a source of encouragement to those of us who now possess the entirety of God's complete revelation in the Old and New Testaments. I think I see where you're going with all of this. I know why you opened the show with that quote from the New Geneva Study Bible. And why is that? Because there may be some people in the Anchored by Truth audience today who also feel chastened and scattered. But even if they are, there are still reasons they can look to their own future with hopeful expectancy. The same God who preserved the Jewish people and provided for their needs is still on the throne today, and we now know that many of the promises God made to them belong to us as well. Very well said. All of us are going to go through periods in our lives when we're all going to feel as though we're not measuring up, and there are going to be times when we all know that we have messed up. All of us are going to have seasons when we think about how much better we could and should have done with the choices in our lives. All of us are going to have seasons in our lives when we feel chastened and scattered. That's the reality of living in a fallen creation and being human. That's true for even those of us who have trusted Jesus for our salvation. But none of that, none of these seasons that we go through, means that God can't or won't continue to help us and that God has given up on us. God can use the disappointing seasons in our lives, just as he used the Babylonian chastening in the life of the Hebrew nation. The faithful remnant that returned to Jerusalem, and the faithful who found themselves far away from Jerusalem, were still under the providential care of a father who would bring them blessings out of disappointment, and victory out of defeat. Right. The book of Hebrews tells us that God allowed many of the things that happened to the Jewish people because they were designed to help us understand how much God really cares for us and how much God really wants to help us. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 16 through 18 tell us, quote, We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, It was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Since he himself was gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Exactly. God has promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us and that we can be strong and courageous because He will be with us wherever we go. But the only way we can look to the future with hope and courage is if we know the promises that the Bible contains for us and if we have confidence in the truth of the Bible. That's a great lesson, isn't it? When Malachi put his pen down at the start of the intertestamental period, there was a pause in God's special revelation but there was never a pause in the plans that he was making for our salvation and blessing. 
And even as we look back 2,000 years to the time when the final book of the New Testament was completed, we can still be assured that Jesus continues to be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Yes, God is continuing with his plan of redemption even today in the lives of everyone who listens to this program. And you know, there are still glorious promises in the Bible that are yet to be fulfilled, but we can be confident that they will be fulfilled. The Jews experienced a period of about 450 years between the end of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. Well, you know, there's a sense in which our world has experienced a 2,000-plus year lapse in God's special revelation. There hasn't been any additional books of the Bible written since about the end of the first century A.D. But God continues to work on behalf of his people even today, even after that 2,000 years, even though he has paused in his period of special revelation. So just as God worked for his people during that 450-year period, God has continued to work for us and with us and on our behalf even after this lapse of 2,000-plus years. Jesus is going to return someday. And when Jesus returns, I have no doubt whatsoever that we are all going to receive additional direct revelations right from Jesus, right from God. So at some point, this gap in God making special revelation to his people This period is going to come to an end. But until it does, until Jesus returns again, even today, God has a plan and a purpose for everyone who is listening. Jesus is our high priest collectively, but Jesus is also our high priest individually. This sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today's prayer comes from another one of Crystal C's offerings, the book Purposeful Prayers. It's a prayer of adoration for the Holy Spirit who lives within every person who trusts in Jesus and continuously makes intercessions for us with the Father. A prayer of adoration of the Holy Spirit. Great and mighty God, you are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for their souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you rule and reign with the Father and the Son. When the Son completed his work and ascended to the Father, you came to be our comforter, instructor, and advocate. You came to take away our spiritual blindness and to make us alive to things of God. At Pentecost, you affirmed your presence in the world and established your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. Praise be to the one who tells us the truth about Jesus and who strengthens us against the forces of powers of wickedness that attack us in our humanity. Left to ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one. But in you, we have victory, for greater are you than Satan who is in the world. You are worthy of exaltation and adoration, for you are fully God and Lord. You regenerate our hearts and bring light to our minds. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who not only imparts wisdom, but also gives us the capacity to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading and we praise you for being the faithful minister to our souls. 
time and time again, you have gone before us to find the path that we should travel. You have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. Finite man cannot fully comprehend the wondrous relationship that is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that the three persons of the Holy Trinity are perfect in unity, holiness, and beauty. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by the Father's sending, the Son's coming, and the Spirit's abiding. Surely such love deserves the response of full dedication to the one who first loved us, and we pray that such commitment might mark our lives. We lift our voices in songs of adoration and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.